Hey there, it's Nick. I hope you enjoyed this episode and the many others here in this fine podcast feed. Now, from time to time, we'll have more fresh episodes for you to listen to here, but the latest and greatest stuff is available on the Luminary Podcast app, so check it out. Thanks, and enjoy the show. start by doing um can you give me um as concise an explanation as you can of what happened to mike and i'm talking about the jump at penn state okay the fall yeah well you call it a fall but why do you call it a fall because i don't believe that he was thinking clearly at the time Michael fell four stories from the balcony of his apartment at State College onto a sidewalk. He had been acting strangely in the days before. So I just want to make sure I I have as much information as you guys can give me. Um, I just want to know what the story is so I can think about if there is a positive way to use it, Mm. what that might be. Yeah, I I remember... Like, he was addressing all of us, like, all of his friends as, like, my brothers. He, it was almost like he was walking around, like, he should have had a cloak on. Like, he was... He started showing an interest in more paranormal things, I guess, specifically aliens or UFOs. It could have been a beginning of a psychotic episode, or it could have been related to the meningitis that they found when he was in the ICU. Mm-hmm. He did not test for any illegal drugs in his system. He did have cannabis in his system. It wasn't recent, was the explanation that was provided. What was after that? After that, the day, was it Super Bowl Monday or Sunday? Sunday night. Yeah, then it was Sunday. Okay, so he came over Sunday. Super Bowl Sunday. Pittsburgh versus Green Bay. He didn't appear to be interested in the game, which his roommates found to be odd. He was like, you you picture where he's going to throw the ball, and you, you make him throw that ball. You make him throw that ball. And then he brought up 10.06. He said, there's going to be an atomic bomb dropped. There's going to be a bomb dropped tonight. 10.06, it's going to happen. It's going to happen here, and we're all going to die. So it's February in State College. It's very cold. He ended up going for a walk on campus with a friend of his. We were cutting through an alleyway, and you're saying, like, right now we're walking through the shadow of death. He did not wear a winter jacket. He went out in shorts and a T-shirt. I remember thinking to myself, like, what am I doing? What am I here for? Like, why am I still walking? We should just turn around and go back. We should turn around and go back. This is weird. We continued on. Climbed a fence and ended up on a practice field. He stopped and got on a knee, and he's like, I have to pray. He's like, hold my hand and pray. And somewhere in that process also lost his sneakers. Then he stands up and starts walking down, like, the hill in the snow. I'm like, dude, you have your slippers still here? And he said, it's supposed to be there. Mike had a delusional episode and then was Mike. And then he had a delusional episode and he was Mike. So when the boys fished him off the field and got him home, when he woke up in the morning, he was a little under the weather, but he seemed like Mike. He went to work Monday. But towards like later in the night, he started uh, like 
that same yeah, like preaching again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Was that the night? Yeah. Two boys kept an eye on him. Two boys went into a bedroom to try to figure out who to call. And that was when he went over the edge of the balcony. Well, he like walked right at me, and I turned to the door. And like as he like pulls the door open, I realize like what he's about to do, and I take a step towards him. But it was like he didn't even think about it. It was just like one fluid motion. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna do this, and he hopped off the balcony. He went over the edge. He leaped over it like it was a stone wall in a field. From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode. Blink once for yes. This is John Facile. mom and we got married so we could start having children without anybody yelling at us we weren't big plan aheaders (laughs) (laughs) we had a great time with you things got better when Michael came along and then things got better again when Patrick came along it just seemed like the perfect thing to add a fourth, and then finally your mom convinced me a fifth. And Emily and Andy. Emily and Andy. I'd like you to describe our family. Should I start with the pugs? No. <laughs> We're all strangely humored, quirky people. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Mom's the quiet little Irish woman. Don't lose your gift cards, guys. Later, put them in a safe place. So they Dad's a loudmouth Italian. And... <laughs> I was guessing. I didn't know what it was. All right, youngest, oldest. I'm the youngest, and I'm, I'm weird. I don't know. Oh, this is very cute. Came out last year, changed my name to Andy. That's why everyone's... Referring to me as Andy and using they them pronouns because those are my pronouns now. Oh, thank you, Andy. Yeah, that's nice. I don't know. I'm queer. That's the best way to put it. <laughs> no, I got one. Um, then there's Emily. No, I got a pug scarf. That's fantastic. I'm in Pittsburgh and she's too smart for her own good. And now I have pug underwear, pug socks, several pug shirts and sweaters. Then there's Patrick who lives at home. And I can hear him snoring through my walls. You get a car. You get a car. You get a car. You already have a car. 
you're the brother who went off and did the arts and things. And no, you live in Chicago, and I have no idea what your world is like. My turn. Hold on. I Wait. want to take a moment. Okay. So, um... Michael would be next. I'd just like to take a minute and hold hands and have a quiet moment and send whatever thoughts you want to your brother, okay? All right. <laughs> You're pulling me. Stop. Please. We love you, Michael. We love you, Michael. Yeah, follow that. Right. <laughs> Michael! I knew it! I knew it! Okay, show me what you got. A new baseball glove! Oh, wow, Grandpa, look at this one. Mike was the golden child. He was the captain of the high school football team, a good student, uh, not terribly rebellious. Well, yeah, he just had a really buoyant spirit, and he would always like map out what we were going to do that day. He would help me out with everything. Before he left for college, Mike was kind of like the brother I always looked up to. Sorry, John. Appreciated. Uh, <laughs> Noted. He was kind of the, the rock of the three brothers. John was the one I could go to for a movie. Mike was the cry and Pat was the laugh. Was Mike your favorite? Be honest. No. I mean, it. You can't answer a question like that with kids because everyone at different times is maybe your favorite. He was a little goofy, but he was also really mature. And to be honest, Johnny, he was a lot like me. He would just text me, I love you, Mom. I miss that. I know when we got the call. 12.58 a.m. I heard the house phone ring, and then his cell phone in the bedroom rang. You know, and he, he got it, and then I I heard you say, he's my son, and then you, you fell to your knees. And I just, just froze. Well, it was 1 o'clock in the morning, and Mom woke me up. She was crying. She said, Mike's been hurt in an accident. And I was like, okay, so we don't have to go to school tomorrow. And she was like, no. And she said, Michael fell. Um, so I imagine that, like, twilight scene where she falls downstairs and crashes through a mirror, that kind of thing. And I was like, oh, okay, he fell. Like, he broke his leg. No big deal. There was very little light in the bathroom. I remember my skin was gray. It was just so surreal. And, and I, I remember... Remember I threw up. And my throw up was orange. Yeah, I did. I threw up in the sink. I just threw up everything that was in my stomach. I know. I think I said, do you know what happened? She said, not really yet, just that we have to go. We drove immediately from our house in suburban Philadelphia to the hospital in Altoona. How long is that drive to Altoona? I have no idea. Five hours? At least. Yeah. It was sleeting. It was snowing. It was raining. It was really bad. 
we were on the Pennsylvania Turnpike and I got a call from Dr. Simon Lampard. And he told me that Mike had arrived, that he was being treated and evaluated. And I asked the question, will he be alive when we get there? And he said, yes, he expected that Michael would still be alive when we got there. There was no long-term discussion. It was just getting him through the next couple of hours. And that was pretty much how the first few days were. They were battling a fever that wouldn't be controlled 106, 107 degrees. They had chill blankets on him um, where they run ice water through them to keep his core colder. He broke two ribs, one on each side, and he broke his left hip, and he had some swelling around his ankles. And a chip neck, too, or right. something. chip in his spine, considering that he fell 50 feet and landed on concrete. It was remarkable how little physical damage was apparent, but it was pretty clear that his brain injury was very severe. I remember standing in the hallway outside his room and the doctor started to assemble and this one doctor wouldn't look me in, like I looked up to smile at him, he wouldn't look me in the eyes. And we go into this tiny room with like, what, 10 doctors? Nurses, doctors, the whole trauma team. And... Plus some medical students. I don't know what the specialty was of the head doctor, but he he told us that, yeah, he said, you know, the good news is his neck will heal. The bad news is you should probably let him go. And I remember falling to the floor and then, then someone asking us if we wanted water. And it was just, we weren't, Expecting that. Uh. Johnny taking your picture, look. Smile for the camera. Are you calm down? Uh. All right. Can you see me? Blink once for yes. Oh, you're saying too much. Oh, okay. What, what you're saying too much too fast. If you uh. could, if could blink, if you could see me, Mike. Blink if you can see me, Mike. Uh, you see your brother? You see your big brother? Uh, hey, big brother! Uh, Tell your big brother hi. Uh, okay. D-A-I. Diffuse axonal injury. Essentially what that means is the, the axons that connect the neurons in the brain were broken and it was diffuse, which meant it wasn't in one particular spot, it was in lots of places. Kind of like sheared all the way around his brain, the connections. He had had bleeding on the brain and there was also a loss of oxygen to one part of the brain, so he had an anoxic injury in another part of his brain. There was not 
a lot of clarity about what the long-term prognosis was actually going to be. Because I remember you calling me on the phone saying, like, one day you'll be able to have a conversation with your brother again. So we met the young man that had been in Michael's room before him with a serious DAI injury, and he was going back to school. He'd lost a year. So, yeah, at the time, I expected to spend time teaching Michael how to speak and how to walk again. Those were the dreams that I was having. Mm-hmm. Was that we were in for a fight, but we were fighters. Michael spent most of his time after the injury in our basement in a hospital bed. He couldn't move. His body was very rigid. One of his legs was bent inward, and his arms were bent at the elbows towards his chest. His toes were curled. His hands were constantly clenched. He was fed and given water and his medicine through a tube that was connected to his stomach. The first day he came home, the hospital bed was set up in the back of the kitchen. He was brought in through the front door, up the steps, around the curve. You carried him up the steps with... In the chair. Yes. Yeah. It was very harrowing. (laughs) Over time, the care that Mike got evolved, and we got a lot of nursing care through a state grant program, and he had 19 hours of care seven days a week. Which was good, but interesting, because you have different characters. (laughs) Katie Key! Y'all made me feel real welcome when I came. I was really, I just, I felt at home here. How are you feeling? I'm feeling okay. Yeah, I'm feeling okay. From the very beginning, it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't afraid to ask questions when I didn't know. And your mom and dad, they talked to me and, you know, they were all in. Deb kind of took on a role of, you know, second mother to Michael. I don't know. I just. I kind of like fell in love with Michael, so it went from there. When your mom couldn't be there, I could give Mike that love he needed, you know. And then, like, I would go home, and then James would come. I'd leave at 6.30. Then James would go home, I would come. I kept a 6.30 bus down the corner. We were good with it. Take you to the subway. James was one of the first aides we had. I get to L69 Street. I take the, uh, I forgot the bus, the 109. He quickly grew to be part of our, kind of part of our family system. To y'all, update y'all, your dad and pick up the corner. I take four or five buses. I got to leave at 6.30 to get there on time at 11. A good day was when we came at night. We worked from 9 o'clock at night to 5 o'clock the next afternoon. We came in at night. We got stuff down. We watched Conan O'Brien. Then Mike with me making a bunch of noise. And I'd be like, 12 o'clock, TV off. Then when you wait for your dad to go to bed, then we turn the TV back on. Then we kept the TV on to like 4 o'clock in the morning. Then I'm like, yo, you got to get some sleep. 9 o'clock, you want to watch TV all night? You got to get up. That's the price you pay. My peace of mind came there taking care of your brother. I would go there at 11, shift them, feed them. He got his 12 o'clock feed, right? If we have to empty his bag, give him water. 
you know, joke of him. I know you wishes a beer, things like that, to him, you know, put something on TV. He always had a movie every time I was over, he had a new movie. If he sees something on TV and he liked it, I get it. You know, I had a hard time finding some of that crazy white stuff y'all watch. Because the bootleggers won't sell that on the subways or whatever. Can you remember some of the titles? Zombie Strippers. <laughs> Night of Living Dead. Zombie Apocalypse. Man, we, anything that came out, we got. A couple of times I dozed off and he was watching Cinemax, but I had the heart to turn it. Uh, <laughs> I just closed the door and turned the sound all the way down because he had a grin from ear to ear. Oh, you mean like the softcore <laughs> stuff? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What you want though? Come on. <laughs> and at the end of the day, on all said and done, he's still a man. Okay, he's a man. So, can you talk about like his level of awareness? Like, what did you th- what did you think? What do you mean his level of awareness? Was he was he conscious? Do you think he had? You some, can talk like, to him about anything. I could talk to Mike about anything, more so than y'all because. To y'all, he was just your sick big brother. Y'all couldn't get that out of your head. I think we got along because I wouldn't make a thing of his, oh, you poor baby, like the nurses do. You know, you poor baby. Man, quit faking and stop that shit, man. I mean, you know, I didn't think of an invalid. Me and Mike would play this game. It was great because you could do it both in person and over the phone. Where he like moaned a lot, he would be like, uh. He had a sound for everything. And then I would mimic his moan or like do it at the same time as him. These dull sounds, these high pitched sounds. He made sounds. And he couldn't help but like smile and it would go like louder and longer each time and he would like change it up. He really understood what was happening and we'd both go on for like as long as we could going, uh. You could say hi, he go hard. Like, you know. Hi. Uh, until he just started laughing. And that was just something really special we could do together. And it was nice that even over the phone, like he knew it was me because I go, uh. We knew when he wanted his mom because he'd be like, he would say, Ma, Ma. We knew that wasn't his mom. We knew that. One of my favorite moments was when I felt like he was trying to say, I love you because he made a three-syllable noise while he was looking at me. And I told him I loved him, too. As the years went on, we formed a little language filled with nods and blinks and me kind of guessing until he smiled that I had done the right thing. He did thumbs up. That was huge because now we could have some type of yes and no conversation with him. And when he could control his blinking, you know, one long blink for no, two quick blinks for yes. In the beginning, we tried one blink for yes, two blinks for no. That was too much. It was overwhelming for Mike. That's when I made the suggestion that we ask questions like, are you in pain? Blink if you're in pain, Mike. You know, we had to make the questions to the simplest form. That's how we made it. That's how, you know, and um, he responded to us. I'm going to tell you, when I really first started liking your brother, when he was upstairs and we was getting tight, I said, Mike, I bet you never thought a middle-aged black man would be your best friend, huh? He started laughing. We both did. Oh, my God. The first time he laughed, 
was very, like, strange. Mom had him on the back deck. I need you to smile. And I was doing homework in the uh, living room. Give me one of your smiles, please. I wasn't really paying attention to anything. Mom was just cracking up. Mom is crazy. And I look back and she's dancing in front of him. She's doing like this weird ritual looking thing. And I see his hand is shaking. And so I went out back and I was like, Mom, what the hell are you doing? And I just saw Michael had this huge smile on his face. I love your smile. He was laughing to the point where like his entire body was shaking. I love Michael. I thought he was having a seizure. I love Michael. I love you. I love you. Oh my God. It was amazing. Um, because he had spent so many months with no expression. What's going on, Mike? It's like a small part of him came back to us. It's King Kong! Go, King Kong! Go, King Kong! He went through so much pain for him to be able to, like, laugh and smile at a silly TV show and, like, understand what they were saying and... You know, listen to you, read to him from, and get so like excited listening to your voice and laughing. There were moments of beauty downstairs, you know. He'd get infections, fevers, these terrible muscle spasms would rack his whole body. And later down the road, he started getting seizures. But he had good days, too. All right, down the lift. The one memory that I'll have forever Smile for the camera. was when we first had the elevator put in. Here we come. And we took him down on the elevator. He had a big smile on his face. And then we took the motorized chair down around the corner of the townhouse building. And the... The grass isn't smooth, so he's bouncing oh my mm -hmm. with the terrain, and we're going downhill, and we're going too fast, and he's just cracking up. <laughs> the chair's bouncing, and we're lurching from side to side in the different ruts in the grass, and you feel marginally out of control. That was so funny. And he just thought that whole thing was hysterical. He had a huge smile, and he thought, he thought we were nuts. I found that when I was with Michael outside, and sometimes, believe it or not, I'd have the electric wheelchair, Michael, and the three pugs, and we'd just go for a walk. And I'd try not to run over a pug, but they stayed to the left side, and we walked. People don't see you when you're in Michael's condition. You have a brain injury. They avert their eyes. And I remember this one day, this mother was going into her house with a little boy who must have been about five. And he turned around, and we were six feet away. And he said, oh, no. And he just, 
he was so sincere and he was looking at Michael and he's just like, oh no. It was just so honest, you know, because he saw that he was broken. It just, I, I don't know. I, don't, I, just, I just didn't want to be around him. It made me sad. Do you have any questions for me? Um, what do you ex expect to do with all this footage? I don't know. Um, I just, if, if I wasn't um, tr trying to do something with this, I'd be thinking about doing something with this. What do you want me to talk about? I don't, I don't know. I, I don't really know what to say. It's been, uh, it's been pretty awful. After a while, I guess I just started wishing that he would, he would die. Said I wouldn't have to see him like that anymore. Because he would have seizures and... I would just hope that one of them would finally kill him. Can you describe a seizure for me? Oh, God. Um, it starts with his eyes would go to one point in the room, and they would stay there. You could tell Mike had a seizure. He started acting funny. His eyes get bulgy. And then sometimes he would start, like, smiling, or part of his face would start to tremor. And then the body would just, like, convulse, and he would start shaking. One of his seizures, thankfully I was upstairs for this, but it was so violent that he just vomited all over. Then he aspirated. Yeah. Being vomit in his lungs. Yeah. Yeah. It's really messed up, man. You know, I really... Let's go into something else. I don't know what the research is. A grand mal seizure lasts minutes. Single-digit minutes. Okay. Michael was having grandma seizures that lasted two and three hours. The seizures were starting to come. They was coming a little bit more. They were just coming more and they were staying longer. And um, they couldn't really be controlled. The only way they would stop in less than two hours was if they shot him up with so many meds that he was in danger of dying and he needed to be ventilated. You have to understand, every time he went into the hospital, which by then had been numerous times, all the interventions were very painful for Mike. They had to do that thing in his leg. They used this inner osteal thing where they drilled a, a hole into his leg bone. And that was hurting him. And then shot an IV in there. So he had that several times. We did that every four to five weeks. Called the ambulance, drilled a hole in the leg, go to the ER, but the seizures didn't stop. And we'd go in and we'd wreck a day. You know, wreck a day, wreck a night, be a mess. Mike would take three, four days to recover. And then we'd catch our breath four weeks and we'd go through it again. After every seizure, he was just tired. You know, he got more and more tired. And more and more, we was doing more talking, he wouldn't respond. He started sleeping a lot. He would go into periods where he would just watch TV or stare listlessly over the TV or just stare like that, like he wasn't even there. When Michael came home, I thought that I could do this myself. And I also thought that if I took care of him, he would get better. And 
I guess on some level, I recognized that wasn't happening. Plus, I was exhausted and I wasn't admitting it. (laughs) You know, I realized that I couldn't get Michael better. You know, I couldn't do it. Like there was no amount of love and care that was going to fix him. And uh, it was very depressing. Were you relapsing like more other than the one time? I relapsed like a, a couple times, but always just like one day. And, um, and then I pull myself together and like talk to my sponsor and like try to make a couple meetings and, you know, being depressed and being tired and then adding alcohol is a really bad idea, which, you know, I found out. All right, I haven't talked about this in a while. Um, oh, God. I hate this. Why? Because it sucks, you know? It sucks to have to say that I was there when my mother attempted to kill herself. That day, I came home from school, and Mom seemed in a particularly bad mood. And so I go upstairs, and I see Mom, and she's by the counter, and she has um, some Coca-Cola and a glass, and she's sipping it, and she's crying. And I was like, this is not right. I didn't even pick up on it. She should not be home. She should have been at work. You know, um, she came in. For some odd reason, I remember specifically, she was wiping her nose and walking backwards. She just was really short and snippy. She was, like, scattered. She was just kind of, like, clumsy all over the place. And she was drunk? No. I didn't smell her. I didn't smell the alcohol she, in her she, Well, I saw the bottle. Oh, I didn't see, I don't know. Um, I didn't smell, I wasn't that close to her. She was just back and forth, up and down. And I think Deb said something like, Kate, why don't you just go there? She was like, I'm, she said, I'm going to take a nap for a little while. And then she went upstairs. She was so upset that I actually said to Andy, like, would you go check on her? And she went up and she said, mom's in the bathroom. Little did we know that while she was actually in the bathroom, she was taking medication to overdose and writing a note. And your dad came in. I said, John, Kate been asleep a long time. He said, okay, Deb, I'm going to go upstairs. And he went upstairs. And she didn't stir when I opened the door. And the, the door creaks. I mean, it always has. Um, and usually that would be enough to get her to at least turn and acknowledge that I was in the room. So she didn't. She was just um, lying on the bed. So I said something to try to get her attention. Nothing. I went over and checked on her, and she was completely unresponsive. And I knew instantly that something was wrong. He was a calm panic. You know, he was going, oh, now I don't want you. Like, your mom just committed suicide. And Annie and Emily was screaming, and they was just carrying on. All I heard was just screaming. They were just screaming at the top of their lungs. And I didn't know what was going on yet. And I went upstairs, and I saw mom like that. So I just went upstairs. I put your mom on her back, and I start howling in her face, and I start smacking her in her face. I'm like, you're not dying when I'm in here. Get up, Kate. Get up. Get up. Get up. I started talking to her and holding her and rocking her. I did find the pill bottles on the bathroom counter. Some of Mike's stuff, some of the more powerful narcotics. I know I wrote a suicide note. I don't remember writing it. 
but I wrote that I missed Michael, right? And I did, you know? There was such a hole in our family and, and getting used to relationships and knowing that he'd never be a part of that. He'd never be in play again in the relationships in our family. It was really exhausting. Like, you have to understand that Michael almost went back for me to being like a baby, you know? We were feeding him. We were wiping his butt. He was giggling and laughing. We would cuddle. Uh Uh-huh. When, but then, how did you arrive at the decision that the Michael that we had it was better that he die. He was suffering. He was suffering. And uh, I felt that allowing him to die was the last gift I would be able to give him. We followed all of the necessary steps that you had to take in order to get medical and legal clearance that Michael's situation was truly hopeless, that there was limited quality of life that was deteriorating, and that he was going to die anyway. He's going to die anyway. And we'd been through so much already. And Michael was really unhappy. We talked to him as best we could during this process to figure out if to the best of our ability, did he agree with what we were thinking about? And, and we did. I'm satisfied that we got his agreement for the course that we took. Can you tell me about the night that he told you that he wanted he to go? Night, he just told me that night. He just said he wanted to go. I asked him what was bugging him. Did you want to watch TV? No. Do this? No, no. I said, well, you want to talk about something? He said, yeah. I said, what? And I kept guessing. Then I just figured, I said, you tired of this shit, ain't you? He said, yeah. I said, what, you want to get out? He said, nope. And I said, you want to leave? You want to, you, want to, you want to go? You want to die, right? He said, yeah. And your mom can hear us upstairs. The next day when she came down, she asked me what we talked about. And I, told, and I didn't want to say it first because that's something you don't want to be wrong at. You know what I mean? I had tears in my eyes, I think. Should have said that on tape. I'm supposed to be a manly man. <laughs> anyway, it was Mike's wish to go. How can I get mad? How can I be sad? I mean, I'm sad, but basically I'm glad because now he's looking down as he's happy. So we talked a lot about like giving Michael a like a death with dignity. I was wondering like what dignity meant to you. For me, it meant that he was home and that he wasn't hooked up to tubes and he didn't have needles stuck in his arms and his family was with him and his dogs were with him. You know, he was surrounded by love and we were there to tell him we we loved him. Everything we did for the whole four years that we 
went through this together. We did because we loved him. We made the decision to give him an opportunity to fight because we loved him. We brought him home to care for him at home because we loved him. Mm. And the decision we made at the end was because we loved him. The only legal option was to cut off food and water. You know, I wish there was a better option. There's not. It just, I didn't, it seemed like murder. I didn't think this was legal. I didn't think there was like a safe way to do this that was pain-free for Michael. I didn't understand that this is a thing that people do and there's a way to do it properly. My mom kind of explained it to me that we would just kind of wean him off of things. And she did this weird, like, comparison to it when we raised our puppies and we had to, like, wean them off of milk and get them to do real food. She was like, we're kind of doing that. We're weaning him off of everything and adding more and more meds to kind of subdue it so that way he doesn't feel it. At first I thought, why are you comparing death to puppies? Mechanically... What we did was we tapered down off the food. So he had been on five cans of food, and then he was on four, and then three, and then two, and then one. So every few days, they dropped another can from the cycle. You know, I remember asking you a few times, like, are we making the right decision? Like, how can you ever, one, make this decision to begin with, let alone know that it's the right decision? It's, it's impossible. It's a horrifying spot as a parent to be in. It goes against every instinct to not feed your child. I was adamant that the only people who were going to make this decision were your mom and I. That we were going to do this together and we would be in agreement and we would make the choice And while it was important to us to discuss it with you guys ahead of time, it was never going to be up for a vote because I didn't want you to have to walk around for the rest of your life thinking that you were responsible for that decision. Yeah, I know. But but there's something, like, implicit, and whereas, like, if I had objected strongly, I don't think it would have been... You know, like, I don't... Would you have gone through with it if I had... had said, like, no, 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 no. I think it was obvious that you wouldn't have. You spent the night with him, his last night, Mm -hmm. um, sleeping with him. And I came down that morning, and I went in, and his color was completely different. He was ashen. But I remember when I first walked in the room and I think Aunt Susie came out and then you came out and you said to me, it's, it's, not, it's not too bad, it's okay. Do you remember saying that? Yeah. And I, I was went sort of in. removed. Yeah, and he's gray. His face was turned towards like you and mom. She was just telling him it's okay. You can, you like, it's your time. You can go now, Mike. And I was just massaging his shoulders as he was dying. Yeah. 
I remember being told that by one of the nurse practitioners that it, it will probably be a more beautiful, peaceful experience than you're imagining. I don't, I wouldn't say it was that way. Um, having your child gasp like that for breath um, and then the pauses and then just the, you know the, the waiting for the next breath or is that the last breath and he did a couple of those in the last few gasps and particularly at the end he looked scared and there wasn't anything we could do other than just hold his hand and then he left us. I sobbed, full body racking sobs and screamed. It was so real and so painful. I have no idea how long that lasted. It seemed like a long time. It might have been a minute or two, which is a really long time to scream that loud. Yeah, I went outside and had a cigarette. <laughs> um, I thought it was interesting how when everyone was cleaning up all around us, the atmosphere changed a little bit to a little, like, lightheartedness. Because I remember Deb coming in, and after she initially cried, remember she kept shaving him? She kept shaving his she face? Her, she put coins on his eyes, she which put, I thought were, was an interesting touch. And then she shaved him again. And then she went to get some more spots, and we were like, Deb, it's, he's good. Yeah. You know, she just wanted him to look good, you know. And one of the things I found amazing about his body was I really thought or maybe hoped that his body would finally relax. No, it didn't. It didn't. Do you still think about the fall? The fall seems like a long time ago. I think more about his actual moments of dying than the fall. We didn't have anything to do with the fall. We still don't know exactly what happened or why. We weren't involved. We had a bigger role in deciding how Michael's life ended. And this is what we had to choose and this is what we have to live with. Well, what's different now? I don't know. I feel more whole. Um, I don't feel his loss with me every second of the day. We were ready to have a different chapter in our lives because this had been so long and so hard for all of us. But again, you know, we didn't want that to mean having to lose him. Do you feel guilty about the way we ended his life? 
A small part, yeah. yeah. I feel guilty that it didn't happen more naturally. Yeah, I feel guilty. Nobody should be kept alive like that. But he was alive. Yeah, but he wasn't able to function at all. I wish you'd spend more time with him. You wish I had spent more time with him? Yeah. I spent more time with him than you did. Yeah, I know, but... All right. Just, are, you, are you mad? Yeah, I'm mad. I'm done. You're done? Yeah. What? What? Uh, don't be a dick. Pat, are you kidding me? I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out, like, what is it about this that you won't accept? What do you mean? You feel like it was the right decision to end his life? Yeah, of course. You don't think he would have wanted to live that way? No. Did he ever tell you he wouldn't have wanted to live that way? No. I didn't want him to keep living like that. Didn't the fact that we had to starve him, does that bother you? Um, not really, because I, I know for people in that state, it's a lot less painful than you would think. Did it bother you that we starved him? Uh, a little bit. Would you have rather we kept him alive? Um, no. I think it was pretty clearly the right thing to do. I just wish we hadn't waited four years to do it. Yo, there's so much about your brother. <laughs> so much. Here, well, let's watch this video real quick. Uh, yeah, let's remember shower. This. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh. Now anything in your picture, look, smile for the camera. He do not like that camera. All right, you calm down? All right, can you see me? Blink once for yes. Oh, you're saying too much. Oh, okay. Well, you're saying too much, too fast. If you could, if you could blink, if you could see me, Mike. Blink if you can see me, Mike. Uh, you see your brother. You see your big brother. Uh, okay, hey, big brother. Uh, Tell your big brother hi. Uh, okay. Do you like living like this, Mike? Blink if you do. See? Do you want us to keep you alive like this, Mike? It's a long question. Do you want us to keep you alive? Yeah. All right, Mike. I just don't want you to suffer. He is, but he don't want to go. See? Yeah. Yeah, he said yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we did the wrong thing. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I have It was easier for us. Yeah. It was easier for us if he died. Yes. 
It gave everybody the power to go back onto their with their lives. You know, it's been so long. I mean, you were living your life, but you weren't here for the dailies. But I think it's been so long since your mom and dad had a life. It had been so long. They didn't even know what a life was like anymore. Do you think that's, a, you know, do you think that's, but do you think that's an, a, an a, just, a justification for doing No. It? No. No. I mean, but do you think we like, I mean, we murdered him, you know? Oh, that's so strong of a word, Johnny. We killed him? God, don't say that. Because I often think about that and I'd be like, I played a part in that. When I all when I thought well, about you, that, I mean, like what do you that. think? Is that a good? Is that the way to? No, don't say that. No, I don't think that he was murdered. Do you think we killed him though? Like, I don't think you against his him. will. I think um, he was beginning to have pain and suffering, and I think he was put out of his pain and suffering. What bothers me the most is that there's like this ambiguity of, about what we what we did. Was it right or was it wrong? Yeah, basically. You never want to know. Well, what do I do with that? You gotta fix. You gotta make it work inside you. You know what? I don't know. When Mike died, it took a lot out of me. Um, I had to go home and just go in my apartment and just be by myself, shut my doors and not, and shut everybody out. I had to figure it out. You know, I had to make something work for myself. You have to make something work for Johnny. Well, what did you make work for you? <laughs> you know, um, I thought about it. Like I said, I spent a lot of time with your brother, okay? I studied your brother. You know, Michael wanted to live, but I just think he didn't have no more fight left. He went at a good time, you know, when he wasn't all, your mom wasn't crying over him all the time. And she could be happy. She got happy thoughts. Y'all got happy thoughts. Y'all don't, the last thing y'all see, um... Is him not riddled with pain. It's been about 19 months since Michael died. 
I miss him a lot. I struggle with replaying our decision in my head. I struggle with life going on. My heart is broken. How do you deal with it? I keep getting up and getting out of bed. Every morning, our older pug wakes me up about 3 a.m. He has dementia, poor fella, and he'll just start barking randomly at shapes and shadows in the house. So I end up leashing all the pugs up and taking them outside for a walk off the back deck. Down, Joe. Down. Good girl. If I'm quiet enough in my mind and less distracted and hung up about stuff that I want to busy myself with, I feel closer to Michael, like I can feel him. Being outside in the quiet with the dogs, that and sometimes at night, it's like the only chance I get to just totally have that quiet time. You know, I just talk to him and um, tell him I love him. And I thank him for being my son. This documentary is dedicated to my brother, Mike. Steve and John were his friends. Later in the night, he started, uh, like... That same... Yeah, like, preaching again, yeah. Deb was one of the aides who took care of him. You know, and um, he responded to us. So was James. I had tears in my eyes, I think. My parents are John and Kate. You carried them up the steps with... In the chair. Yes. Yeah. It was very harrowing. My siblings are Andy. We kind of like formed a little language. Emily. And he couldn't help but like smile and it would go like louder and longer each time and he would like change it up. And Patrick. And I was just massaging his shoulders as he was dying. I'm John. I'm the oldest. That's it for Love and Radio. This episode was produced by John Facile, Stephen Jackson, and Lizzie Schiffman Tefano, with additional help from Patrick Tefano. If you go to our website, you can see cover art made by John's sibling Andy, and hear a bonus scene of his parents listening to this episode for the first time. John's also asked me to provide a link to the Brain Association of America, 
a national support network for people with brain injuries, where you can also make a donation. You can find all of that at loveandradio.org. Love and Radio is produced by myself, Jesse Carrier, and Stephen Jackson. Radiotopia's executive producer is Julie Shapiro. Radiotopia is supported by MailChimp, celebrating creativity, chaos, and teamwork, by the Knight Foundation, and by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. See you again after the holidays. Thanks for listening. For more information about new Love & Radio episodes, go to luminarypodcasts.com.